All right, Psalm 142, verses 1 through 7. Let's yield our hearts to the word of God. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know the way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is no none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being our refuge and our strength. Thank you for surrounding each of us with the family of righteous in this room right now. And thank you for blessing the teaching today and bringing it very close, near and dear to our hearts as we draw even closer to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you're taking notes and you like titles, uh, How God Shows Up. How God Shows Up. We're going through the Psalms, not all of them, but a selection of the Psalms over the next, I don't know, few weeks up into October. And we've seen Psalm 1 as a gateway to the Psalms. We've seen Psalm 6 gives articulation to pain and um, surviving suffering. We looked at Psalm 19 to see how God has shown himself in the world and how God displays himself in the word and what that means to work those things into our souls. And today we come to Psalm 142. It is one of the few Psalms that comes with a story attached to it. If you've spent any amount of time in the Psalms, you see that mostly there's a heading with perhaps the author and it's set to the choir master, or it's a Psalm of David or Sons of Korah. There's one, I think, of Moses, maybe more, in there. And you don't get a whole lot of context behind them, which I think is probably intentional because humans suffer with unhealthy comparison. And so if we saw more of the story, we would judge and go, oh, you're a baby. That's not that hard. I wouldn't be that dramatic about your story. Or we would uh, get deflated ego and be like, oh man, if that's what that person faced, then my stuff is nothing. So I, I think there's a gift that God doesn't give us more information on most of the Psalms. But this, if you see the heading, it says a maskal, that is a musical uh, setting. I, I can sing the Psalm to you if you want. Um, Anthony, you, <laughs> did I hear you say no? Nope. <laughs> With my voice, I cry to the Lord. Um, make it kind of like a Gregorian chant. With my voice, I plead to the Lord. I don't know. No? Keep going? Keep going? No? Dr. Pavlina. Okay. So it's a musical one. And it says this, that he was in the cave. Now, David, if you're familiar with his story, there's two caves. I'm making the case that this comes from 1 Samuel chapter 22. Uh, 
I read this week uh, a few commentaries on this psalm. Uh, one of my favorite headings for it was from Sam Storms. He's a pastor and theologian in Oklahoma. And he says, this psalm teaches us how to pray when God seems strange. And when you see the story of David, at least for the first time, uh, the cave experience is quite odd. The whole story of David, at least to me, and I'm going to attempt to convince you, is quite odd and unexpected. Why is it odd and unexpected? Well, 1 Samuel 22 gives us a bit of the breakdown, and why I find it odd and unexpected is David is anointed king in 1 Samuel 16. That's six chapters later that David finds himself in a cave, and it's not for uh, exploration or spelunking reasons, to use a word that Anthony loves, spelunking, cave exploring in a fancier way than what's necessary to cave exploring. Um, This is the guy that was described as God's anointed. He's the one who is a man after God's own heart. Like I said multiple times, he's been anointed king. He has slain Goliath. And he finds himself completely alone in a cave. Years after this promise that he would be the next in line for king. 1 Samuel 22 verse 1, David departed from there. This is uh, from Gath. He's fleeing from Saul, the current king who is attempting to kill him. And he escaped to the cave of Adullam. That's where he is. Then later we'll see his brothers and all of his father's house here. And they went down there to him. But David is in the cave alone by himself. And this prayer, I believe, comes from it. There's another cave experience that he has a little bit later on, but there's more people around it. And I think another psalm that more articulates that, uh, that could be another discussion for another time. But this psalm in particular gives language when things take a turn for the worse for an exceedingly long amount of time. Which leads to the question, because we're all a little bit self-absorbed and self-interested, what would you do? Or maybe better, what have you done? What did you do when you found yourself in one of those seasons of extended misery, difficulty, questions, pain, wandering, wandering, solitude, alone? In that gap of expectation and reality that we often face in life. Again, David has been, and this, out of all the stories in scripture, this one trips me out probably the most, is that between David being anointed king, the spirit had departed from Saul, and his actual, like, being placed on the throne was believed to be 15 to 20 years, in which most of it was spent running for his life from King Saul. What do you do in that gap? How do you pray? This psalm teaches us. And I I feel like part of my job is to regularly remind us all of the entirety of God's story. That there is, both in the Psalms and the entirety of the book, there's a lot of grace, there's a lot of goodness, there's a lot of wow and wonder and awesomeness. Yes, it's in the book. And there's pain and there's suffering and there's difficulty. Unlike a New York Times bestselling book, not every day is actually a Friday. And that's just a slight dig on one pastor that I like to dig on from time to time. His name rhymes with roll 
posting, not to name names. This psalm helps us. So it gives us the gift of a follower of Yahweh, David, his faith and his humanity. And the opening comes with some really helpful assumptions that are baked in. It's coming from an experiential place that is instructive for us. And that is this, that he cries out, he pleads, he pours out his complaint, and he tells his trouble to God. The assumption baked into all of that is that God hears us in dark places. God hears us in isolation. God hears us when it seems as though we are completely alone and isolated. It may feel or seem like the language of this prayer uh, or any particular prayer needs to be right or all together or formulaic. I don't know, maybe some of you are intimidated by the idea of prayer because you feel like you have to do it in old King James English and you're not so good at old King James English. It's thou almighty potentate. I've heard that word before. God, Father, blessed, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. And we can stay from prayer because the intimidation of it that we've been uh, gifted with from others. But here, David just shows us, poured out before the Lord. And the gift that, that darkness and suffering and pain can give is it takes away pretense. It takes away our ability, usually, to pretend. Pain just breaks us down into a raw place and gives us this gift of honesty with God. It ought to remove the facade. And it reveals our tendencies. I mean, some of us have a tendency in pain and difficulty to just go simply inward. That is that we can run from God or others. We can resent, bottle it up, isolate ourselves, kind of uh, repress and push everything down. Some of you, experts at that. In the inward orientation when pain and difficulty strikes. Others have a more outward tendency. That is that you, if you're like me, maybe double down in your self-strength. I'm going to figure this out. Maybe you get louder, more vocal, or you cry out elsewhere. Uh, you go to any other avenue that might be of help. But the Psalms, and this Psalm in particular, shows us that there's a better way. That when we just simply go inward into ourselves or outward and kind of double down, get bigger and try harder, that that multiplies our miseries. Instead, there's this orientation that we can have of going Godward that grows relationship and perspective. Again, David here cries, pleads, pours out, tells God of all of his troubles, and that's a tried and true path for followers of God. Doing business with him is a welcome place all the time. And there is no, here's the 10 rules you have to do in order for God to hear your cry. Here's what you need to have together before you talk with God. There is no prerequisite. I came across this quote from Sharon Hode Miller this week. She said, Abraham debated, Moses protested, Jeremiah worried, and Elijah basically whined. You could add David here, he cries out. But Jonah, Jonah ran. It's a reminder that arguing with God is not an obstacle to intimacy with God, but a primary channel into it. 
think the temptation we often face, again, in difficulty, in pain, is to go either overly inward into ourselves in isolation or look outwardly to other channels rather than doing business through prayer with God. In the cave, that's exactly what David does. And what do we notice? Well, from this language, he sees that there's, we see that there's faith, that God is the one who hears, who can give mercy, who knows David's way, while then juxtaposing that to the enemies of God that would set a trap, that don't notice, that don't care, that there is not a safe place for David's soul where he's at in that time. And so he continues to ask of this God who is his refuge, who is his portion. I looked up that word this morning because I've always thought his portion is like, I always think of MRE, like you're out, you're in the wilderness, you're destitute, and you go, oh, I got an MRE. That's a portion of food. And it can mean that, food-like. It also means like inheritance, a plot of land. In the Hebrew, it's got multiple meanings. I don't know exactly what David's saying. I like the idea of a good snack more than the plot of land, but that's me projecting on the text. And so um, it can mean both, that, that David sees that God is his inheritance and God is the one who is going to feed his soul. And continues to ask. He says, God, attend, deliver, bring me out. And then I find this to be one of the more helpful things. He says that this God, in delivering him, he says, bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. Which again, causes some reflection in us that should, if and when God delivers us, what is that going to be for? What's the purpose of it? What, sh- what is it going to produce in us? And for David, he says, that I may give thanks to your name. He says, I want to lift up the name of God. I want to glorify the name of God. And I go, usually it's so that my circumstances are just simply better. James, uh, in the New Testament, kind of gives uh, a holy, I don't know, uh, it's, it's kind of like a ninja slap a little bit. Like, James is just a tough book. And he he doesn't pull any punches at all. James says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Or you ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So in that church, uh, James is saying, "You're, you're praying these prayers. You're asking for these things, but it's just simply for Yourself. Whereas in this psalm, we see David desires deliverance for the name of God and renown of God and praise of God. Again, the motives of our prayers are unmasked. Maybe some of us, I'm not going to name names, make deals with God. If you do this, then I will never, or I promise to always, or... And again, it's, I'm much more like the people in James's book than David. And you can look at your own life and do an analysis of all the promises you've made and kept or not kept to God. David's heart is deliverance that he might praise, lift up, give thanks to the name of God. Trusting deliverance will come. He says, the righteous will surround me For you will deal bountifully 
with me. There's a theme in the Psalms about the righteous that I've always kind of struggled with, especially when David says it of himself, because are you doing Psalm 51 next week? As we'll see in Psalm 51, David is not um, the exemplar of moral perfection and righteousness all throughout his life. Don't want to give any spoilers. Come next week. Anthony's going to teach on it. Psalm 51. He commits adultery and murder. But that's just a little teaser. Just a little teaser. But what is this theme of righteousness throughout the Psalms about? Uh, Old Testament theologian Christopher Ashe from the UK, he says, A portrait of the righteous in the Psalms tells the true story. They find their refuge in God and as a result receive a righteousness from him that increasingly characterizes their lives. They also anticipate the coming of the righteous one in whose mouth the psalmist's word find their ultimate fulfillment. And so David prays this prayer, writes this song in a place of isolation and darkness, pouring out his heart to God, having a direction for his distress, trusting that God will deliver, David will give thanks, and he will be surrounded. And so what unfolds in this story, I at least find particularly interesting and somewhat comical. You saw already, because verse 1 of chapter 22 said it, that David's family hears about it, comes down to him. But look at who else shows up. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 2 through 3. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about four hundred men. So David's family shows up. The same family that when they were looking for king and Samuel was looking to anoint, they all passed over David and were like, there's no way David's going to be that guy. And Samuel's like, the Lord has said that none of these sons of Jesse are the ones. And they're like, oh yeah, there's one other guy. He's out in the field. That's my interpretation of it. They didn't pick him. He's last. And so the family that looked over him comes down to him. And then all the rest. Did you see the description? Again, I'm projecting a little bit here. But if you're in a place of darkness and distress and isolation and pain and you're running for your life, does that sound like a descriptor of people you want around you? Distress, in debt, bitter in soul? I imagine just a bunch of people with cross-eyed, missing teeth, And like a few of them don't have a kidney because they owed it to the bookie and they had to pay up. And, you know, Eugene Peterson puts it this way in his message translation. Not only that, but all who are down on their luck came around losers and vagrants and misfits of all sorts. David became their leader and there are about 400 in all. These are the righteous that surround David. Now, it's not going to be on the screen, but does it sound like this, Matthew 5? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. That, to me, looks like the description of people in 1 Samuel chapter 22. It's not the first pick or the second pick or usually even the last picks in the kickball game that show up, but it's the Beatitudes in real life. And we can see as the story unfolds, it's not like these are the brave and the bold and the beautiful. In the next chapter, David is called to go up against the Philistines. He stores his family away in Moab, basically in enemy territory, and they're like, I don't think we should go up against the Philistines. They are going to ruin us. David inquires of the Lord. They're all scared. David inquires of the Lord again, and God delivers them through these 400 and begins building about a base that will eventually lead in the kingdom of Judah and eventually Israel as a whole. How does God show up? How does God close the distance? It's with unexpected, messy, broken humans. God uses them to accomplish victory and his purposes unfold through protecting David and Israel, leading to the demise of Saul and perpetuating lineage for Messiah Jesus. This psalm reminds me of a quote from Thomas Edison way back in the day. Opportunity is often missed by most people because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. I think that we often miss out on good things in life because it's more difficult, unexpected, or the people that God surrounded us with are not simply those that we would prefer. Right? Not the best of the best, the prettiest of the prettiest, the upper richest, whatever. But this is how God works. It's the same in church and life and community. Many of us miss out on connection with people and help in real life because we are judgmental and picky. Beggars attempt to be choosers, to use another cliched phrase. We have our preference on age, gender, style, theology, socioeconomic status, political affiliation, a whole bunch of barriers to belonging that we place when every single human soul that's made in the image of God has a treasure trove of gifts to give. If we take the time, if we build the trust, if we ask the questions, if we listen, if we're willing to learn and open up our souls, does God not show up through people? And we can all do our own history, chronology, and see that. Many of you know my story. A little punk, angry kid who at 15 had a youth pastor show up and I've given him a hard time because he was not the best preacher. That's a, the hill I'll die on. But a really loving soul that continued to show up again and again and again to this day. For you, 
who was it? Again, I'm guessing not the upper crust all the time, right? A parent, a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, somebody with wrinkles and warts that showed up for you, that God put together in a time, in a place to get you through a season. Friends, this is the story of our church as a whole. This is us. Maybe less crossed eyes and missing teeth than what I imagined in David's day. Thank you, modern medicine and dentistry. Well, here's what I wanted to have us do. And, and I know you can, you can despise me for this, but for one second, stand up and look around. Make eye contact. Everybody, stand up. All right? Make eye contact with somebody around you. And I know some of you are like, I come to this church because we don't do greeting times. Why are you having us do this? But again, one more time, a quick glance. Look around. All right, you can be seated. Thank you for, for participating. You can write me an email. Anthony at unionaz.org. But here's the truth. I can guarantee that the gaps you're facing in this life can be filled by people in this room. You may not know exactly who, and so it demands that you ask the question. Hey, I'm going through this, that we open ourselves up vulnerably and that when somebody's opening themselves up, that we are patient, careful, aren't jumping in to fix, but simply be present and patient and press one another towards Jesus. That's the posture to take. Not fixing, not repairing right away, not seeing somebody as a pet project, but a soul to love, to know, to enter into their story, ask questions, and together point towards Jesus. Again and again and again in my life, I can look back through the history and just see how God has placed people in my path at particular times that have, that have literally and metaphorically kept me alive and on track throughout the years. This is how God shows up through people. And these psalms that recount this give us language to pray and they point us to Jesus. Jesus, the one who enters in. And how does he go about redemption and salvation? He, he assembles and brings together a group of imperfect, broken disciples and he knows them, and he loves them, and he sanctifies them, and he sends them. He comes into this earth and lives this path of life, death, and resurrection, and equips his disciples to do the same, to live life where they are, experiencing the, the pain and the deaths and the, all of that. And through those micro moments, he builds about 
resurrection. There's a book by Paul Miller called The J-Curve. It's the same guy who wrote uh, Praying Life. We gave out a bunch. But, but Paul Miller in this book says that the shape of Jesus' life and our life is, can you imagine the letter J? I'm going to do it backwards for you. But it's life, it's death, and it's resurrection. And not that there's always this, you know, we want this clean line up into the right, but the life of followers of Jesus, if we're following Messiah, is one of life, death, resurrection. And it's simultaneous in multiple times in different areas of our life where we can be experiencing resurrection in one and death in another. And so it's, it's all encompassing. I'll give you a post of his this week in the email that I found helpful. Here's a quote from it that Paul Miller says, we should expect a life of dying and rising that continually reenacts Jesus's life. So when friends disappoint or families desert us, but we aren't confused about our location, we are dying with Christ again. What the Apostle Paul calls koinonia, fellowship of his sufferings. So we still hurt, we still grieve, but now our temporary dying isn't just little old me on my own. I'm caught up into reenacting the most magnificent story ever told, the gospel. I'm not just believing the gospel, I'm becoming like the gospel. This is the path that Jesus leads his people on. He takes people that are diverse and different all across the map. He binds them together with a center strong enough to hold them together in unity. And that isn't simply by their theological convictions, their political parties, their personal preferences, but by the person and work of Jesus. That is the only force strong enough to hold together a people today, <laughs> a church today. Political parties ain't it. Particular theolo theological minutia, theology matters, but the minutia, that ain't it. Jesus is it. And he builds and strengthens and surrounds his people and gifts us with one another for these pain points in life. And through that, we grow. Through that, we see grace. Through that, we give praise and glory to God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, having lived this story, he says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's enough of a verse to chew on for the rest of a lifetime. He says this, but we have treasures in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. That's where Paul Miller gets the J-curve. Death is working in us, life in other people. So what does Paul do with that? Well, if you skip down to verse 16, he doesn't grow bitter. He says, we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, which is hilarious if you actually see what Paul was facing. It's like it's a Monty Python that's just a flesh wound with what he's actually endured. Light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. How? As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so, friends, this morning, I hope and pray that you can see that God often, if not vast majority of times, that he shows up in a life is not by waving a magic wand and letting it all go away. If you have that story, then God bless you. I wouldn't count on it more than once. Um, How God shows up is through people like you, like me. How God closes the distance in your life and in other people's lives is like you, like me. Not looking to solve every problem and answer every question, but through a prayerful presence that is looking to point people Godward. And if you take that and reenact that and remember that in your own life, it gives you a renewed imagination for where God has placed you with friends, with families, with coworkers, with neighbors that need presence and need people. Again, not to guilt and shame and the old answer, you just need to get yourself in church. And it's like, yeah, and... A meal together would be nice. God has placed you intentionally and purposefully in this time and in this place to show the beauty of Jesus in the nooks and crannies of everyday life. And so Psalm 142 begins with a plea and ends in praise and the space in between and how God answers the plea is through people like you, and like me, showing up for one another, and God accomplishes his purpose in that way. Let's pray. And so, Father, we thank you that you are the God who sees, who hears, who knows, who leads, who guides, who directs, and who has gifted us with people in this room, in our lives, who has shown up again and again through those attentive to your spirit, to listen and to love. We thank you for that. And we ask as we now respond that you would encourage us by the ways in which you have shown up through the years. You would give us um, hope and patience for the places and the gaps that we are waiting on you and that you would open our eyes to see the opportunities that are all around us to show up with love and presence and courage with and for one another and those that don't yet know you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.